and I am acutely aware of my own inadequacy to proclaim your word. And so, Lord, I look to you, that you are the one who's going to come and preach to us, that you will speak your word, and you will provide the life that it offers, and you will encourage your saints with all that you have to say and to do in our lives. We pray in the wonderful and the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. The other day, as uh, Liz and I were putting our kids to, to bed and going through our devotional time, uh, one of my children announced to us that, well, that she had a problem. Her ears were itchy. Not the biggest problem, but a problem. And, you know, not wanting her to stay up for, you know, most of the night and complaining about her ears being itchy. Well, we, we offered up a prayer and, you know, my wife dutifully asked the Lord to take away the itch. And after we said amen, she let us know, well, her ears are still itchy. And asked, could you tell God that to make it stop now? <laughs> there is no... Uh, with children, it's, you know, they, they know what they want, and they want, they want what they want. And there's no dignity in saying, well, I want my ears to stop being itchy, and I want it now. So can you get some of that divine favor over and just make it stop happening? And, well, we kind of refused. Um, but, you know, her, her desire and her wish, it's not too different from what we often want, is it? As we cast our prayers to God, and yes, our, our problems seem to be a lot more serious. Well, I think most of us have problems a little bit more serious than temporarily itchy ears. But, you know, we call out to God to come, to help, to save, to deliver, to, to set us free. And so often, well, there's a delay. And we don't necessarily understand why. Why doesn't God answer our prayer? in the ways that we want? Why doesn't he come and save us from this you know, discomfort, this pain, this agony, this disease that continues on and, and wastes away my body, this lingering depression or anxiety where I seem to get no relief, this anger for the death of a loved one that he, he never responded to my pleas? And how does that make us feel? Unloved, alone, defeated. Wishing that the, the, well, the heavens would open up and, and hear our, our prayers, and yet God seems deaf, and heaven seems closed. And we may wonder why. Is it the vastness of my sin? Is it the smallness of my faith? Or is this just a result of a God who's distant and aloof to my pain and my suffering and my discomfort? We even hear in the Psalms, how long, O Lord, till you answer, till you hear me, till you deliver? How long do I have to wait? And very often, well, heaven seems delayed or it seems silent to our pleas and requests. And if you would, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 11. If you're using one of the, the pew Bibles that's in front of you, you can turn to page 1094. And we're going we're gonna to be hearing of a story of, well, a delay in answering prayer. 
Because, thankfully, we are not the first ones to experience this. Uh, It's a common theme throughout Scripture, and it's even common in, in the ministry of Jesus. This week, we are concluding our series of being surprised by Jesus. And, you know, we've spent the last eight weeks allowing Jesus to surprise us once again. And to hear, you know, what's... What should strike us about the accounts that we see in the scriptures. So if we would, we're going to be in John chapter 11. Um, we're going to be starting at verse 1, but we will be skipping a little bit in, for sake of brevity. So John 11, verse 1. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Verse 3. And so the sisters sent word to Jesus saying, The Lord, the one that you love, is sick. And when he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was for two more days. And then he said to his disciples, Let's go back to Judea. His disciples argue with him and tell him that, Hey, people want to kill you there. Um, But then he, he lets them know, verse 14, He told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake, I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe, but let's go to him. Verse 17, on his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days, and Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. And when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, oh, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. And after she said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here. And she said, and he's asking for you. Mary heard this. She got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who had been with Mary in the house were comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out. They followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to mourn there. And Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him. She fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. And the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odor. He's been there for four days. Jesus said, 
Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped in strips of linen and the cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. This chapter begins with both a promise and a prayer, or a problem and a prayer. The problem, Lazarus is sick and he's dying. And the Mary and Martha, well, they do what you're supposed to do with your problems. They bring it to Jesus. Hey, you love Lazarus. You love us. Come do something. And Jesus delays. Perhaps he dawdles. He doesn't do what they are expecting him to do. They want him to come and act. And he doesn't. And what does this do? Well, there's a an implicit and perhaps explicit accusation against Jesus, isn't there? Why didn't you act? Why didn't you do anything? Right? Both Mary and Martha, when they first meet Jesus, what do they say? If you had been here, my brother would not have died. Do you hear the implicit accusation? Where were you, Jesus? He's in the tomb because you weren't here. Why not? Don't you care? Don't you love us? Didn't you love him? The crowd, or some in the crowd, were a little bit more explicit about that, weren't they? As Jesus was weeping, and some were like, Jesus surely loved him. And what did they say? Well, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Right? We see his tears. We see his, well, what appears to be grief. But real love acts. Real love does something. He was dying and he did nothing. Right? The implicit and explicit accusation against Jesus Man, if you had just loved him a little bit more, well, you would have done something. And in some ways, Mary and Martha and perhaps even the crowd, well, they represent us. When we call out to Jesus, when we ask for his help, and there's a delay. He doesn't do what we want. And we, very often, well, we behave like them. And perhaps in church, we're a little bit too dignified to do so. We wouldn't dare really do that in front of, well, the rest of you people. But we wonder, well, why doesn't God act? I've casted my cares upon him. I've offered up my prayers, and yet I'm still in anguish. I'm still under the, the evil, chaotic powers of this world. They're still raging against me. 
And very often, it can be hard to understand, well, why doesn't God act? And today, we are not necessarily going to be talking about why, in your circumstance, God does not act. What we are going to be talking about is the things that we can know despite the seemingly inaction of Christ. Because I may not understand Christ's timing, but I can be assured by this, of his love. Read with me again in verses 5 and 6. What does it say? Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. He stayed. We would expect something like this. Jesus loved them, and so when he heard that he was sick, he got up and he went. He heard their call, and he got up and he went, just as we would for if our kids called and you know, said, hey, I'm, I'm having a problem. We'd say, all right, I'm dropping what I'm going to do. I'm going to go see them. But that's not what he says, does it? He loved them, so when he heard, he stayed. In his staying, Christ had a purpose that was for their good. They couldn't see it. They couldn't know it. They were blind to the goodness and of Jesus' purposes in their life. And that's where the accusation, the implicit accusation, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But his not being there was not because of his lack of care. It was because of his love. He loved them, and so he stayed. That within our sufferings, within our trials, within these things that we have to go to, that God has a purpose and a good purpose for his people. Within these trials, God offers us transformation. The repeated theme throughout the, throughout the scriptures, particularly in the New Testament, he says, you know, the, the epistles write again and again, rejoice in suffering. In them, God is producing something in you. He's producing perseverance. He's producing endurance. He's transforming you in ways that, that without this suffering, he would not be able to do. So rejoice in it, they say. He offers us transformation. He offers us revelation. Right? We see this in uh, 11.14. He tells his disciples, you know, Lazarus is dead, verse 15, and for your sake I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe. In the divine delay, Jesus reveals something true about himself that would have been obscured otherwise. That he is indeed the resurrection and the life. And he tells, at the very end, he he prays to the Father saying, Lord, I, I pray this so that they would know that you sent me. The truth about who Jesus was is revealed through his delay, rather than his action, in a new way, in a profound way. And within our sufferings, God offers glorification. What does he say in verse 4 again? The sickness will not end in death. No, it's for God's glory, and that God's Son might be glorified through it. That as this you know, sickness that leads to death came and consumed Lazarus, and people are weeping... Ultimately, what does God do? 
he redeems the situation. He glorifies himself and the son through it. That the suffering and the pain of these people, as they, as they undergo this terrible thing, well, God reveals something true about himself, and he glorifies himself and glorifies the son. In your suffering, God is at work too. And we can be assured of his love for you in your trials, in your hardships, in the divine delay of him answering your prayer that God is at work and his will for you is good. He's offering something within this. Not that it's not evil. Oh, it's evil. But there's goodness in it being offered to his people regardless. My wife faithfully reminded something, I'm not very good with dates, uh, but she reminded me uh, this morning that yesterday was the one-year anniversary from when I applied to be the pastor here. And after nine months of delay, it was good to, to finally come and to, and to move into the place where God had called us. But I'll tell you, during that nine months between when I first applied and when ultimately we were able to, to come here, it could be frustrating at times. And I'm sure for some of you it may have been frustrating because you were in the midst of the process as well. But within that, was not God working? Was not God doing a work in this body preparing you? Was not God doing something in, in our lives preparing us? Yes, it might have been nicer, at least it seems like that, if things went smoother. But God was good. We may not understand his timing, but we can be assured by his love. Secondly, we may not understand his timing, but we can be assured by his compassion for his people. Read with me again verses 33 and 35. And Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping. He was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Verse 35. Jesus wept. That within our sufferings, Jesus is moved. He has entered into the grief and the sufferings of of us. I always found it interesting that that Jesus, who who knew better than us, Lazarus' eternal destiny, and Jesus, who knew what he's about to do, He let us know beforehand, I'm going to go and raise Lazarus from the dead. I'm going to go wake him up, he says. He tells Martha, your brother's going to rise again. It's not obscure to Jesus what he's about to do, that in just a few moments he's he's going to be alive again, but yet Jesus weeps. Why does he weep? It's not for Lazarus' destiny. It's not even for Lazarus' being dead for he's gonna, he knows that he will, he will see him again in a few moments. No, it's, it's because he enters into the grief of his people. He meets them there. He's not aloof and distant in their grief. He, he comes and he takes it on even if it, he realizes how short-lived and short-term it is. He's moved by the grief and the weeping of his people. And he, and he comes and he has compassion on them, even knowing these things. 
oftentimes one of the hardest things about suffering is not even the pain itself, but feeling alone in the pain. That no one else can experience it with you. That no one else can truly understand. Yet the proclamation of the scripture is that as because you know, God who took on flesh and dwelt among us and suffered as we had, that we have someone who does truly understand what it means to suffer, what it means to go through hardships, what it means to have pain. And that, that person is the mediator between the Father and us. He is, as Hebrews says, you know, he is this sympathetic high priest who petitions and intercedes for us, who brings our needs and our, and our cares and concerns before the Father, pleading on our behalf. We don't have a God who is aloof and indifferent or un, even unable to have experienced the sufferings of this world. No, we have a God who came down and suffered with us. And he didn't become calloused for us. Well, I suffered and I succeeded. No, it says he, became, he was, Hebrews 4.15, we have a high priest who is not unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. He's been tempted in every way as we have, yet without sin. We have an advocate for us who has experienced life on this earth. A while back, I um, met a woman in, in, the, in the hospital, and she was one of these uh, she had one of those well, really hard stories of just continued suffering and decay in her body. You know, oftentimes we talk about slow progress as being two steps forward, one step back, but for her, as she explained her journey, is more like one step forward, two steps back. Every time there was a moment of relief over, the, over a span of years, it seemed like the next thing just piled on and became even worse. And hearing her as she's unfolding all her, her medical ailments, it's easy just to, to pity the person and offer them nothing. But doing pastoral ministry for a while, I've, I've learned to ask, well, have you been experiencing the grace of God in this? Her face lit up. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. His nearness to me has been so it's, it's been so present. It's been so real. As I'm struggling and in and out of hospitals for years and I feel my body wasting away, the nearness of Christ to me has been unlike anything I've experienced. That Christ has come close to his people. He meets us in our suffering. He lets us know that we're not alone. He assures us that he is with us. He offers us, well, what no one else can, a knowing and close Savior. And so while I may not understand Christ's timing, I can be assured of his love, I can be assured of his compassion, but lastly, I can be assured of his resolve. It's not an accident that from this moment, you know, as we... Jesus moves towards Calvary. The beginning of the very next chapter, he's anointed for his death and burial by, by a, the, the woman. 
And he begins to predict his death to his disciples. It is from here that Jesus moves to take care of the ultimate problem. To by death defeat death itself. Yes, he raised Lazarus from the dead. But Lazarus would eventually die again. He wanted to solve the problem, not just the symptom. Because beyond Lazarus, there's a whole, you know, the whole world is under the rule and reign of sin and death. A whole earth shakes at its terror. None can defeat it. None, no matter how hard you try, no matter how hard you, you wish, no matter how much energy and effort and wealth and power you accumulate, none can get beyond the power of death. And Jesus moves to take care of that. What does he say again? Read with me again in, in verses 25 and, and 26. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing me, in me will never die. That Jesus makes the move to not only raise Lazarus, but to take care of the ultimate problem, he is resolved in his spirit to go and to, and to be the victor for his people. Now tomorrow is Halloween. And when I grew up, I grew up, uh, and I was always a little bit jealous because I was not allowed to celebrate Halloween. All my friends got to go out and get free candy, and I was stuck in the house, um, trying to coax my mom to give me some candy anyway. For a lot of Christians, there, you know, it's been told and you know it's been confirmed or affirmed by uh, you know atheists and neo pagans that Halloween is is a pagan holiday. Most of the time, if you Google the origins of, of Halloween, you're going to get, you know, the first several pages that talk about how there was a, a Celtic festival called Samhain, and, you know, the church decided, well, we don't want people celebrating that, so they moved All Saints Day to November 1st, and then Halloween was born to kind of replace this pagan, uh, this pagan festival, and we just kind of adopted some of their uh, things that's going on. Uh, you know, so like that's why we have a lot of like weird things like dressing up, and there's a, a lot of mythology about there. And you know, my my family, they believe that. Uh, the problem is that that's not what the historical evidence actually shows. It's a myth. All of it derives from one source, James Fraser's The Golden Bow, which was sociologically f significant but historically inadequate, talking about how you know Halloween is really a pagan holiday. But Halloween is not a pagan holiday. Halloween is a Christian holiday. And the idea that it came from the Celtic Druids is just is without any sort of well, historical validity. Tim O'Neill, he's an atheist historian who has a, a website called History for Atheists. Because he's so embarrassed by well, a lot of his fellow atheists when they say things like Christmas is really pagan, Easter is really pagan. Halloween is really pagan. And he dives into the actual his, the sources and how 
these things developed. And he reveals and he shows, well, it's not actually really pagan. And there's not a shred of evidence that Halloween came from uh, Irish Druid priests. And, you know, one of the, the big things is, well, we have no records of what they actually did on Samhain. None at all. But the other thing is this. We know for a fact that Ireland uh, celebrated All Saints Day on April 20th, while the Germanic tribes were celebrating Halloween on November 1st already. And if it was, you know, if the date was changed in order to replace Samhain, you would assume it would start in Ireland and then move elsewhere. But that's exactly the opposite of what the historical research is. Now, I know a few of you are saying, well, why are we talking about this? I get it. But the reason we're talking about this is because of the proclamation in Halloween as a Christian holiday. Because Halloween precedes All Saints Day. And the reason that people get dressed up in garbs, it's changed over time and has lots of different things. And yes, there's lots of secular you know, customs thrown into Halloween, especially as a bunch of different cultures merged in America. But one of the reasons that people would dress up you know, in ghoulish figures throughout history was not because of some scaring off the evil spirits like the Druid priests did. It's to reenact the truth of the Christian story. That tonight, it seems like death and its terror is ubiquitous. It's everywhere. But tomorrow, tomorrow we recognize that we have a victor. That the saints who died are with the Lord. That those who believed in Christ will rise with Christ. That those who died in Christ will be resurrected with Christ. And while it says that tonight seems like it's, it's haunted by the, by the ubiquitous presence of death and the terror that's found within it, tomorrow we rise. Its reign is short. It's limited for the night. But tomorrow a new morning has sprung because we have been given a victor. We have been given one who is the resurrection and the life. We have been given one that those who believe in him, who trust in him, that he has resolved and he has completed the work to undo the terror of the night. We have the resurrection. And so, yes, tonight it seems ghoulish. Tonight we're under the veil of death and its suffering. But we have a victor. And it furthers, once again, the theme of Scripture. From exile comes redemption. From Good Friday comes Easter. From Halloween comes All Saints Day. And those who die in the Lord will live with the Lord. He is, indeed, the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in him, though they die, they will live. And whoever lives by believing in him will never die. And he asked Martha, do you believe this? And he asked us, do you believe this? That in our suffering, we may not know, we may not understand why Christ delays, why God doesn't answer right now, why God doesn't just remove us from these things, but we can be assured of this. 
He loves us. He has compassion on us. And he has the resolve to redeem and transform and renew the very suffering that we're in. And so you, beloved, you who've come in here with a heavy load, you who've come in with perhaps years of suffering, waiting for the redemption of God, waiting for Christ to answer, know this, Christ loves you, Christ is with you, and Christ is for you. Christ loves you, Christ is with you, and Christ is for you. Christ loves you, Christ is with you, and Christ is for you. And he who took on our suffering and our pain and our death extends to us his life. And in the midst of these things, you can be assured and comforted and given the hope that's found through Jesus. To know these things that are true. He loves you. He is with you. And he is for you. And all your pain and all your suffering and in this time between when you have sent word to Jesus and he has finally come, you can be comforted by these things that we know to be true. Amen? I'd like to invite up the worship team and those who are going to be joining me uh, in prayer. And as I pray, I, I'm, during this next song, um, we're going to invite you up, if you want prayer, to be assured and to be comforted by the, the living presence of Christ in your life. That those who, of you who are carrying a heavy burden and wanting to be renewed and re-energized and, and to have the, well, the truth of what Christ offers made known to you, that we would be happy to pray for you. So uh, Wes and Kaylee are going to be over here, and my, Liz and myself will be in here, and Dave and Sharon will be over here. And if you, just want, if you want prayer for anything, just to, to, that the, even that these, these words that Christ offers us would be made real in your life, I'd invite you to come up and, and to receive prayer if you desire. Let's pray. Kind Father, I know that no amount of eloquence or rhetoric or even the lack thereof is going to um, transform the hearts that are deeply weighed down by, by the hardships of this world and of this life. And so, Lord, I, I ask that you would come and to, to make known and make real these words to your people here this morning. That you would comfort us by your spirit that you would assure us of the truth in your gospel. That the hope that's found in your resurrection, that you would uh, help spring up and spring forth from our own hearts. That your love, that we would know, that your presence, that we would experience, and that your life, we would live. So come, Lord, and, and renew and restore and encourage your people here this morning, we ask. In the wonderful and the powerful name of Jesus. Come as you feel led.